Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We are offering three conversations from this week's episode, What Will Treatment Pathways Look Like for Nash Patients? In this conversation, the group asks which healthcare provider will drive treatment at different disease stages, how this will change prescribing guidelines and decisions, and what role players might play in the process, at least within the U.S. Driving these questions and answers is the appreciation that successful NASH therapy will touch on a range of other metabolic issues, including diabetes, lipidemia, and weight loss. The underlying optimism of this conversation reflects our belief that many of the agents and modes of actions that have succeeded in early phase two trials are heading toward phase three and eventually we anticipate market. So prepare to have your eyes opened and your mind stretched. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion group. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest, hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Mazen Nuruddin, as they discuss why a strategy of escalating and de-escalating therapies might be the future for NAFLD and NASH treatment, this week, on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. So what you're going to see in the States, though, Louise, the first line, you're right, will not be Mazen and will not be Stephen and will not be people who, frankly, are as charismatic and compelling on this set of issues, nor are they as engaged in this set of issues alone. So a lot of folks will take a pass at diet and exercise if all the other diseases we look at in the States are a guide. We'll take a pass at diet and exercise and we'll go to drugs fairly quickly and we'll go to drugs to a significant degree based on what's promoted to them in increasingly short, infrequent exposures to information that will be modulated by guidelines. At least that feels right to me because that's kind of what everything else feels like. I don't know. Mazen, I see you nodding. Steven, I see you kind of thinking. I think Steven is thinking because he's at the beach having all these chips, guacamole and margaritas and police is bringing up all these diets. So he's, he's thinking what kind of meal he had today. Good thing it's not forbidden for hepatologists to have an occasional margarita. Occasional. Define that. Stephen. <laughs> Occasional for Stephen. But seriously, I mean, when you put this in the hands of the lay treatment population, at least in the States, how do you guys think that will be different than what happens when we're talking about how you're going to treat? One thing we've learned is that you have to keep it simple. This is why we talk about backbone therapy. Backbone therapy is that therapy that's simple, that covers a wide range of disease severities, that hits pleiotropic mechanisms, that hits extrahepatic manifestations of disease in these patients. So that's ultimately going to drive backbone. Now, as you mentioned, that can change. It may start here, and a year or two later, it may pivot to something else. And it didn't mean that the former backbone therapy goes away. It just kind of gets intertwined into the armamentarium as these primary care guys turf those patients to secondary and tertiary providers. That's in our bag of tricks to give the patient. It may not be the frontline drug, but it 
it is still an effective drug that could be used in patients that aren't responding. That's the other thing is I think these primary care guys will, will go at whatever is easiest and they're not going to know when to switch the drug, stop the drug, add drugs. That's all going to happen, I think, at the next level. But even if they do it, they may not know what thresholds to trigger a response or a change, right? That's a whole nother. It gets more and more complicated, right? So we have to keep it simple. Not that they're not intelligent. These guys are brilliant, but they're trying to manage their, their jack of all trades. They manage lots of different diseases. Mason and I sit at the tip of this iceberg where we're really focused, at least in our research efforts, on one disease state. As a hepatologist, Mason is much more broad-based than me because he's much younger than me. So he still is in the fight with transplant and everything else where my efforts are solely focused on really managing fatty liver disease from an NIT and a treatment perspective. So where I can speak to NITs and treatment, I, I think it's inappropriate of me to expect my primary care or even general GI colleagues to be able to know off the top of their head or even at the flip of an app, what's the right cutoff for PDFF to determine if I should keep a patient on a drug? What about ALT drop? What about an MRE change? A fiber scan KPA change, a CT1 change, which one do I use? What's the right cutoffs? All those become very complicated. And so I think they're going to start simply, use what's available, and then pivot at that point. In fact, they may start off by saying, I don't mind prescribing this, but Mason, I need you to help me manage this patient. I totally agree. It's going to be an art. We're getting kind of towards the end of our hour. Stephen, what you just sketched out is a world where the primary care doc or the, the primary G GI, primary HEP, if there is such a thing, might deal with the patient until it gets complicated, turf the patient out to tertiary, and then take them back. A, will they be able to get them back, do you think? And Mazen, that might be more a question for you than for Stephen. And B, is is that ultimately what escalation or de-escalation is going to look like? Different doctors are at different levels where they're comfortable doing different things. So someone slides back down the scale again, however that would work. At that point, they're going to be back in simpler therapies. The primary care will be very happy sending these patients to us to manage the F2 and F3 patients and try to reverse their fibrosis. They have enough on their plate and they're very happy for someone else to talk about what Steven said, the MRI, the CT1, the ALT in combination with ELF and all that. I think they, they still play a major role in my mind for now because I'm, I'm still not sure when aspirin is indicated and when aspirin is not. We might learn or not when to start statins because of you know side effects of medications, but I think they will also continue to follow them all along for the comorbidities. We also might send back some patients, tell them, no, it's not as severe as you thought. Keep them with you and send them back to me when the fiber scan is that much or the ELF is that much. So I think it will be a real partnership. We're going to take the pool of the significant fibrosis, and I mean by that the F2 and higher, to treat them. We're probably going to end up sending them back to the primary care. I don't know at which point. I, I will probably Probably perfectionists, maybe when we defatten the liver, but some people might send them back when they get rid of the fibrosis and let them just like manage it with weight loss and exercise. Do you think this is an opportunity for strengthening comorbidity management teams that are based locally who can then, there will be sets of tests that cardiology, endocrinology, hepatology, particularly with fatty liver disease population, all need and can be escalated through either one of the streams, depending on what comes back. So they get their fiber scan and they get all of their other tests, they get their bloods and they're multimorbidity managed and each one of the partners gets everything and then we look at them as a whole because I think then you've got a specialised area that's coordinating the 
case for primary care. Louise, I'm going to take that one and I'm going to say something provocative because that's what we're all about on the podcast, right? 20 years ago, the introduction of the electronic health record was something that was met with a lot of resistance and people did not want to use. And now if you don't have an electronic health record, people look at you like you're the dinosaur. Everybody has an EMR. I think where we're headed with the complexity of therapy that you just outlined, Louise, and that I mentioned before your comment is such that we need what's called a digital therapeutic solution. We will build computer-based algorithms that drive the management of these patients. And the computer will eventually dictate what patient's options are at what stage of disease that the computer thinks they are based on the inputs of all the non-invasive tests and the clinical data that's available. They'll route those people to appropriate care points. And if they're mild, they'll be managed through lifestyle modification and their associated comorbidities will be managed accordingly. If on the other hand, they're deemed to be moderate, they're going to go to this particular pathway. If they're severe, they're going to go to this particular pathway. And at each of those pathway points, there's further workup that's required and there's further therapeutic optionality that's available to those patients. But I think only a handful of these guys are ultimately going to be seen by Mason and myself and others. The majority are going to be cared for by computer-based algorithms. That's the only way we're going to get this right in the future because of the complexity that we're seeing in the management of these patients. That's what's coming in the future. How far away is it? Five years, 10 years? Not sure. But that's my prediction. Thanks, Stephen. Marcin, let me ask you a question. What's the one most important factor beyond the fact that it's an art that you think is going to shape the pathway over the next five years? It will shape how treatment will evolve. Once you get past the obvious, which is which drugs get approved. Stephen says computer algorithms. We're talking about different specialties and all that. What do you see shaping how this goes forward? I guess it's drug efficacy. What is going to work and what's going to not. I mean, the results of the clinical trials. I think the ETC conference that Stephen and uh, Rohit arrange is will be very informative. But I really think in the next five years, we need to have open-minded to move beyond the current assessment of clinical trials outcomes, at least to move to artificial intelligence, like the AI in histology, as well as non-invasive testing. In my mind, if it's too early for the FDA for non-invasive testing, they need to look at ways to improve the histology because I'm afraid that we're missing something meaningful or at least a greater magnitude of response with with the current histology or like the the placebo is screwing up things that are not supposed to. So just being open-minded to things and having more dialogue about how to improve clinical trial performance, which actually is going to try into clinical trials, especially with NITs, is going to shape the whole field. It depends how fast you get there. Thanks. That's great. And thanks for being able to join us today. Thanks, Mason. And Mason, thanks so much for joining us. And, and congratulations again on your beautiful family. And get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Worlds of questions. So Stephen, one for you, and then Louise, let me let you go next. I know that in a lot of specialties, they're doing that kind of computer algorithmic stuff you're working at right now as an aid to the professions. Right now, about that in GI, for example. Um, is anybody doing anything like that in hepatology right now, or, is, or are we not far enough along? Yeah, you know, as far as I know, we're not far enough along to do that yet in hepatology. I'm not aware of that. When it's hepatitis C and you got drugs like Maverick versus Hepclusa versus others, it's not as important to build algorithmic management decisions, right? You have a positive PCR, viral load detectable, write the script, and you cure the patient 98, 99% of the time. For fatty liver, this is a chronic care management pathway. It's such a heterogeneous disease. It involves such a large percentage of our population. And 
there will be so many different targets and so many different ways to measure the efficacy of those targets. And then we throw into that a complexity of combination therapies and those having their own efficacy targets in NITs. And then we throw in polygenic risk scores. And then we throw in the complexity of diabetes and heart disease and kidney disease and sleep apnea and liver cancer. And it just becomes algorithmic almost in the way that we want to manage these people and not miss something, right? So that's the other piece in all this is we don't want to miss a cancer. We don't want to miss the development of renal failure. We don't want to miss an impending heart attack. So so how do we manage appropriately here, right? There are some drugs that if you have heart disease and stage three fibrosis, maybe a drug that doesn't hit atherogenic lipids, despite the fact that it hits liver disease, is not the ideal drug for you if there's another one that does both, right? So so I think even though that other one might be an injectable versus a more well-tolerated oral, you might lean towards a different route of administration if it buys you that extra benefit because of your particular comorbid state. So it's primed for an algorithmic management scheme that's going to be digitally based. How we get there, I don't know, but I think we have the technology now to begin to look at what that might be. And now's the time to do it as we're just beginning to get this data rolling in because that snowball is gonna pick up speed and the data, I can tell you already, when I sit down and think about abstracts for AA, NASHTAG, easel. They're coming more and more and more frequent. And it's not just me, it's all my other colleagues in the field. The The data is proliferating at such a rapid pace that it is becoming harder and harder to keep up with it. Even NITs and, and drug development has becoming harder in the field of NASH to be on top of your A-game and know exactly what's going on with each of those. So we're going to fall back on this eventually. It's just a matter of kind of building it. I absolutely agree with Stephen. And I think keep it simple is absolutely vital and I think you will see the AI Jean has presented on back reading and on his AI projects you'll get a standard blood film and screening eventually for all GPs that a computer system will read and up put those patients into brackets and Stephen's right it's not controversial I think it's the way to go because you start that very early in somebody's health pathway and management of their lifestyle and wellness again you pick it up that much earlier it's become more cost effective and you pick the right patient for the right drug. And I think he's absolutely right. I, I totally agree. The only thing I do believe is that the pace of change will be dictated by how fast drugs come to market and how successful they are and who, in fact, is motivated to build the algorithm and how successful they are at getting it adopted. Because the question will wind up being about timing. And that, by the way, to use the phrase that Dr. Harrison used that triggered this discussion, that could be a whole other discussion, is what are the things that are going to happen over the next five years that are going to make this faster, slower or change the pace. So I want to plant a stake in the ground and say we're going to do that at some point. We should be wrapping up right about now. So um, final question. People listening to this, what should they take away from this that is not controversial? And what should they take away that is controversial? One of each. Well, it's not controversial is that drugs are coming and there will be a lot of them. What is controversial is what's going to be the backbone and how will we escalate or de-escalate therapy based on patients' individual disease characteristics? When will combination therapy come into play? All these are, there are way more unknowns than there are knowns. What we can say is that drugs are coming. The future looks incredibly bright. Now, we've been saying that. So what's novel and new about this particular statement? I think I can say with more assurity that 
that we are moving the needle on NASH and we're moving the needle on fibrosis. And for the first time in the history of mankind, I think we can say that we're moving the needle in NASH cirrhosis. So the future does look bright, but there's still a lot of unknowns. If I had to say what's not controversial, it's the diet exercise is still the mainstay of all of the treatments that we've got until we get something better. I think if I had to think of something on listening to the discussion today that's probably a bit more controversial is we will move that much more rapidly if all of the other associated conditions wake up and smell that the liver is intrinsic to the wellness and the improvement of their patients. Because by doing that, we identify the patients at biggest risk fastest and can get them adequate treatment and move forward at a great pace. And I think by identifying more patients, we will move forward quicker and that needle will move even further, as Stephen describes. Thanks. I think what's controversial is I don't know how backbone will play out here or in fact, whether there will be a single backbone. You know, statins have one, diabetes kind of had one and had one for a long time. Hypertension didn't really have a single backbone once it was 10 years into treatment, it had three or four of them. This may wind up being more like hypertension because there's such distinctions between patients based on severity of disease and and concomitant condition. So my controversial statement is there may not be a backbone. Remember how many backbones there are. Well, there, that's, that's right. There may be there, there may be 24 of them that move. I think that, that's more to the point. But when people say a backbone, I think they're talking about one. And that I'm not sure is going to happen here. So that would be my controversial. My less controversial would be that integrated algorithms with diet and exercise and behavior change will become important and they will be facilitated, Stephen, in part by EHR, because that means you can manage all that at once, and in part by the success of wellness programs, Noom, stuff like that, which actually give people ways to do that without the doctor having to drive the whole thing themselves. I know we see things like that happening in GI and a whole bunch of other areas. I think eventually when we know more about this disease, they'll come here as well. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back on Wednesday, May 26th to preview International Nash Day. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.